0: This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis.
1: And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to continue with season two. What we're going to start with today is the low back, and we're going to go over some introductory topics today. This is an area Alexis and I talked a lot about going into season two, and we felt like it really needed to be kind of revamped from season one. We did a few episodes on it in season one and they were pretty long, kind of bulky and covered a lot of topics. Um, low back is such a significant part of the OCS exam and we felt like it was only best if we kind of redid these and divided them down a little bit differently and made them a little bit more digestible. So like I said, today we're gonna go over the intro topics such as prevalence, risk factors, clinical course, evidence-based practice, differential diagnosis and outcome measures. So the first thing we're going to talk about is prevalence. Um, Low back pain is the most common cause of disability and lost work time among working age adults. It's often going to be considered an epidemic in the research. Low back pain patients make up the largest diagnosis subset seen in physical therapy, particularly in the outpatient setting. And specific prevalence numbers vary significantly, with the research estimating anywhere from 26 to 80% on any given day. Patients with acute symptoms often don't seek care, and most often we're going to see in the clinic more chronic cases, anywhere from 10 to 30% of the population is affected by low back pain, by chronic low back pain. Estimates indicate reoccurring episodes of low back pain are between 24 and 33%, so that's anywhere from a quarter to a third of the population is going to experience those reoccurring symptoms. Women tend to have a higher prevalence of low back pain than men. Lower educational status is associated with an increased prevalence, longer symptom duration, and overall worse outcome. It's also important to note that increased age is going to be correlated to higher prevalence. More severe, low, more severe forms of low back pain are also going to increase with age. So it's also important to note if you have a patient that has multiple of these factors that are going to increase their prevalence, that can happen kind of exponentially. Occupations with higher physical demands are associated with a higher prevalence of low back pain. So material workers have a reported prevalence of around 39 to 40 percent and sedentary workers are going to be closer to a prevalence of 18 percent. It's also important to note that there's no significant differences between working and non-working groups. Because prevalence numbers vary so greatly, they should be utilized to recognize the large percentage of people who have low back pain and the impact that that has on our healthcare system, it's important to recognize which individuals or patients will benefit from therapy and what therapeutic interventions are going to be helpful for them. And what they're really talking about there is that, you know, rather than using prevalence numbers to identify one specific thing, it's just important to recognize the um, vast majority of the population that's going to experience this at some point, what our role is in helping them, but also helping to classify them. And that's where those four categories or five categories of low back pain is going to come up in things like the clinical prediction guideline and stuff. And that's really what we'll have subsequent episodes on. So if you're not familiar with those, it might be helpful to familiarize yourself with those as we go forward. The next thing we're going to talk about is risk factors um, one, a patient's own expectations of recovery is going to be a large predictor of their success. Vice versa, it can also be a large predictor of their, their lack of success in conservative management. A higher pain is going to be associated with a worse outcome in most cases. However, previous history, job satisfaction, educational level, marital status, number of dependents, smoking status, working more than eight hours, or occupation – Do not necessarily correlate to a duration of time out of work due to back pain. In adolescence, prevalence can range as high as 70 to 80% by age 20. So that's pretty high. Up to 80% of adolescents can experience back pain. Um, Again, you're going to see a higher prevalence in females than males. It's important to realize that anthropometric measurements, lumbar segmental mobility, and trunk strength in adolescents are not as strongly correlated with pain like they are in adults. Prevalence in adolescents with low back pain resembles a U-shaped curve. What that means is adolescents that are underactive and adolescents that are overly active are where we're generally going to see those classifications of back pain. So you kind of want to educate the patients to avoid both extremes, that they need to kind of find that happy medium. Um, It's important to realize, too, that psychological and psychosocial factors are commonly increased in children with low back pain. Some evidence suggests that that can actually be a predictor of future onset, So, it's important that we address and use our role as physical therapists to help adolescents with back pain to prevent them from becoming those chronic cases that we see in adulthood. Current literature doesn't support a definitive cause of initial episodes of low back pain. So, I think that's just a a good tidbit of information. We can't always link one episode to another, even if the symptoms are recurrent. The clinical course of low back pain is what we're going to talk about next. Next. Generally, you're going to see Definitions for acute, subacute, and chronic phases. Um, Commonly associated timelines are less than one month for the acute phase, between two and three months for the subacute phase, and greater than three months for the chronic phase. Phases are difficult to define in cases where symptoms are recurrent. Sometimes patients have a hard time defining when they've been symptomatic versus asymptomatic, and it's hard to figure out if there has been any separation between episodes. The phases may not always be consistently defined in research. um, So just keep that in mind going forward and when you're reading articles and stuff studying that what they're talking about may not match that exactly. Factors that are going to increase the likelihood of developing recurrent low back pain include history of a previous episode and joint hypermobility, especially in the spine, but it can be seen in other joints also. Factors that are going to increase the likelihood of developing chronic low back pain our presence of symptoms below the knee, psychological stress or depression, kinesiophobia, low expectations of recovery, high pain intensity, and those passive coping mechanisms. So our role as physical therapists is to provide evidence-based practice. So really a couple tidbits on what is evidence-based practice and how does it fit with low back pain. Evidence-based practice is to, defined as research findings combined with patient preferences and values combined with our clinical intuition or clinical judgment to guide care. It helps to develop usable guidelines that are developed by panels of experts, and they make recommendations for the best available treatment options based on combinations of high quality research. So really it's you know experts in our field kind of combining research for us and giving us recommendations that we can use for everyday practice. Ideally, these guidelines improve the patient outcomes while more efficiently utilizing our resources and better referring to the appropriate providers. Many evidence-based guidelines exist for the treatment of low back pain. However, generally speaking, all guidelines recommend early intervention focused on active approaches while encouraging patients to return to their normal activities, discouraging bed rest and prolonged positioning, while also including early identification of red, yellow, blue, and black flags. So we're gonna cover a few of those flags today, um, but the black and blue flags are outlined pretty well in the current concepts book if you're not familiar with those. The most common concern with evidence-based guidelines is that a one treatment for all approach doesn't provide the best care. Sometimes evidence-based practice isn't interpreted correctly and it's implemented um, in a way that may not be best for the patient, So when you're applying the guidelines, it's important to remember that they're just that, they're guidelines, and they have to be combined with your clinical reasoning and clinical expertise to match each patient's needs and avoid that one treatment-for-all approach. Um, The authors of the current concepts really make a note that evidence-based practice does not mean one treatment-for-all approach. The next thing we're going to talk about is kind of those different colored flags and how they fit with differential diagnosis. You know, differential diagnosis really comes in as – uh, direct access is increasing in many states across the country, and our role as physical therapists is improving in the primary setting. And so, we may be seeing patients that aren't, haven't been screened. So, the goal of differential diagnosis is to guide classification and match patients with the most effective treatment approaches, and then also be able to identify when it's appropriate to withhold treatment. It's important to realize that the rate of serious pathology in low back pain is generally very low, somewhere around 0.9%. And the causes of non-mechanical, more serious symptoms that we need to be aware of would be cancer, cauda equina syndrome, spinal infections, spinal compression fractures, spinal stress fractures, ankylosing spondylitis, or aneurysms. The most common red flag that you're going to see in outpatient setting is a spinal fracture. So the five most helpful factors, factors to diagnose include greater than 50 years, a female gender, history of major trauma, pain and tenderness, and a co-occurring distracting or painful injury. So anyone that comes in um, that has any of those five factors, you definitely need to have your radar up for a spine fracture, especially if they haven't had any imaging. That would be a case for imaging. Red flags um, are really also used to identify some of those serious pathologies. So we're going to go through a few of them now. Um, as clinicians, we should be using these as clusters. Um, most patients are going to present with at least one red flag. You know, pain at night is one of the things that's asked about when you're doing red flag testing. A lot of patients with back pain have pain at night when they're trying to sleep. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have cancer. If they have a cluster of findings in there, then it, it should raise your awareness even more. Cluster testing is really used to improve the diagnostic accuracy. So you want to consider a referral to the appropriate medical provider when the patient's presentation is suggestive of serious medical or psychological pathologies and the reported activity limitations or impairments are not consistent with those presented in the diagnosis or classification system that we're going to talk about in subsequent episodes here. The first one I want to go over is the back-related tumors. Typically with these, you want to be concerned about constant pain that's not affected by position or activity, pain that gets worse with weight-bearing in at night, age over 50, a history of cancer, failure to improve within 30 days, unexplained weight loss, and no relief with bed rest. Another important one is called equina syndrome. In this, you're going to see urinary retention, fecal incontinence, saddle anesthesia, and sensory or motor deficits in the feet. Um, Cauda equina, if they have multiple of those factors, that's a pretty emergent situation. They should be evaluated probably in the ER. Um, You shouldn't send them home. Um, The next one is back-related infections. So here you want to be on guard if someone comes in with a recent infection, a concurrent immunosuppressive disorder, deep constant pains that increase with weight-bearing a fever, malaise, swelling, and spinal rigidity. Spinal compression fracture, similar to what we talked about a, a couple minutes ago, but this is going to be your history of major trauma, age over 75, prolonged use of corticosteroids, point tenderness over um, a vertebra, a vertebral body or spinous process, and then increased pain with weight-bearing. Abdominal aneurysm is another one to be on the lookout for. And that's going to be back, abdominal, or groin pain. So sometimes these patients complain of pain that starts in the back and kind of radiates around to the front and to the groin. Coronary artery disease or peripheral vascular disease, a smoking history, a family history of uh, AAA, age over 70, and an abdominal girth greater than 100 centimeters, palpation of abnormal aortic pulse. So there's a test you can do for that clinically where you – Place your fingers on their abdomen, feeling for the aortic pulse. And if you feel one, then that would be considered a red flag. Yellow flags are a different class of symptoms or findings that indicate psychosocial risk factors. And these are often in cases where the pain is persistent and chronic. So in those more chronic cases, that's probably something you need to screen a little bit more consistently for. Flags can describe a patient's personal beliefs about pain and injury, and they may sometimes be untrue. So sometimes emotional stresses, hypervigilance, and pain catastrophizing class um, can kind of put them into that class of having yellow flags. When yellow flags are identified, the rehabilitation approach should be modified to emphasize active rehabilitation, really avoiding those passive mechanisms, getting those patients into graded exercise programs, providing them positive reinforcement, integrated exposure to activities that they may be afraid of. So outcome measures in the low back, there's a lot of different ones. So we're going to talk just on a few of them that are most commonly mentioned or most commonly seen clinically. The first one being the Oswestry Disability Index or the ODI. This is going to capture a patient's perceived disability in patients with low back pain. Probably the most common one you're going to see pretty quick and easy. The other one that's referenced in some of the more common study materials here is the short form 36 or the SF36. This is a general health status index. However, it's going to lack region specific sensitivity and sensitivities, and it's not going to detect changes as well. The Roland Morris Disability Questionnaire and the Quebec Back Pain Disability Scale are of two others that are mentioned. I don't think they're as widely used. But again, they're a little bit more back-specific, so they're probably going to be a little bit more sensitive to change over the course of care. To help with yellow flag screening, some of those blue flags, black flags, those kinds of things, it's important to know about the Start Back Screening Tool, the Pain Catastrophizing Scale, and the Fear Avoidance Beliefs Questionnaire. Those three also help have some of those psychosocial questions involved and may identify some of those for you. The last thing we're going to talk about in this introduction episode are levels of evidence and grades of recommendation. You know, I think it's pretty well known that when you're studying for the OCS exam, it's important to read the clinical practice guidelines. And we definitely utilize that as a source for some of the information that we relay to you guys. And so, before we start getting into all these different categories of low back pain, I think it's important to make sure that everyone is on the same page about what different levels of evidence mean and where the grades of recommendation come from. So the levels of evidence, um, I want you to realize that the level one, they're level one through five. Level one is the best, and that is defined as evidence obtained from high-quality high diagnostic studies, prospective studies, or randomized control trials. Level two evidence is also pretty good. That's evidence obtained from lesser quality diagnostic studies, prospective studies, or randomized control trials where maybe the diagnostic criteria and reference standards were weaker. There was improper randomization, no blinding, um, or less than 80% follow-up. So not a terrible level of research, but not as strong. Level three evidence is where the recommendation kind of starts to change depending on what the topic area is but that's case controlled studies or retrospective studies. Level four, level four evidence is a case series and level five evidence is just an expert opinion. So kind of along that same lines, the grades of evidence sort of follow suit with those. We have grade A through grade F with the grade A being the best. That's defined as strong evidence based on a preponderance of level one and or level two studies. And it must include at least one level one study. Grade B recommendations, moderate evidence based on a single high-quality randomized control trial or a preponderance of Level 2 studies. Grade C is considered weak evidence based on a single Level 2 study or a preponderance of Level 2 and 4 studies, including statements of consensus by content experts. Grade D is where the recommendation starts to really change. That's where you're going to see conflicting evidence based on higher-quality studies, conducted on the topic that disagree with respect to their conclusions. Grade E is theoretical or foundational evidence, and grade F is going to be the expert opinion based on best practice of the clinical experience of the guideline development team. So I hope that that's some helpful background information on low back. I hope it kind of helps, you know, clear up some of the general topics that would apply to all back pain patients and kind of sets the stage as we move forward talking about the very specific categories or classifications of patients with low back pain. As always, if you have any questions, you can certainly email us. We'll be happy to get back to you. Alexis, did you have anything else you wanted to add on the introduction of yeah, low back pain?
0: Uh, I think the only thing I really wanted to note was that in the first season, we did an episode, you did an episode on FLAG's. So if that's something that you're unsure about, um, look back at season one. um, It's the fun with flags episode. There's um, more information on that if you are seeking that out. Um, The other thing I wanted to mention, so I think it's really awesome that you went through the levels of evidence and um, the different grades of recommendation. Those are going to apply to all of the CPGs, not just the low back. Um, So hopefully that's helpful as you're looking through, uh, kind of get really familiar with those because as you study your CPGs, you're gonna see those over and over again if you're just starting. Um, And then the other thing I just wanted to note is, again, why we're breaking these down so much is just that there is a relatively large percentage of the test compared to other areas um, talks about low back. So I think it's super important that we're kind of breaking this down.
1: Sounds good. So stay tuned. The first one we'll be doing is low back pain with
0: mobility. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Amanda.